I was at an organization based in Chicago, and this organization was in North Carolina, where I live now. And it really felt like a perfect fit. And I have to say, through the process of working with the search firm to the search committee made up of the actual, you know, board leadership and leaders from the association serving on that committee, I felt really good from the start. I just felt sort of an organic tie to the organization. I usually leave my personal life out of things. You know, I have two little kids and we benefited from a form of team care from when they were born. And I shared that story early on and felt a, a kind of direct connection to that scientific community, but also how it directly impacts patients and families. And really seeing what I think a lot of us in the nonprofit world look for, which is this idea that we could be professionally fulfilled by doing something for the greater good in that kind of servant leadership role. And that's really the best way I can describe it is, it just felt right from the moment that I first engaged with our organization. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story, and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Adam Levy, Executive Director of the American Cleft Palate Craniofacial Association, or ACPA. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Adam, tell us about ACPA. Yeah, ACPA is a 501c3 organization founded in 1943. We do function very much like a 501c6. We are a membership society, a professional membership society. We have just over 2,000 members from 60 countries, I want to say, mostly the U.S. and Canada. We represent around 30 healthcare disciplines. Everything from different surgical disciplines, different oral health, dental disciplines, mental health, speech language pathology, and many more. We practice and promote the idea of interdisciplinary team care. We have 200, if not a few more, ACPA-approved teams across the U.S. and Canada. Adam, tell us about cleft and craniofacial conditions. These are the conditions that you're devoted to or that your members are devoted to treating. So what are they? Our vision statement is pretty succinct on this. It's leading interdisciplinary cleft and craniofacial care so patients and families thrive. And really what's key there is that term interdisciplinary care. Most people think in the U.S., I should say, that we talk to you about orofacial, craniofacial conditions, cleft palate, cleft lip, or other craniofacial birth differences as things that happen overseas. You know, traditionally with a lot of the large charities who we do work with, we see more pictures and hear stories about lower or middle-income countries where they see this impacting individuals. What we do is we leave that science behind the care for these patients. 
So that has to do with research in the form of our cleft palate craniofacial journal. This is the leading clinical journal in the world in this space. We do that through our annual meeting and a variety of other ways that we disseminate information and provide, of course, forums to share that knowledge. Cleft and craniofacial conditions are not known to have a specific cause. We certainly have correlations. There are organizations doing that work. In general, however, we have what we like to say one in every 700 births is born with a cleft lip or palate. Ah. Some of those numbers need to be updated, which we're also working on. But it is the second most quote-unquote common birth difference in the U.S. And what we, you'll hear me say the word difference, we've really moved away from saying the word birth defect, especially with public facing use. Providers still use things like anomaly, things of that nature, you know, a craniofacial anomaly, a birth anomaly. But we really try to use the word difference as opposed to defect. Adam, how are these conditions treated? So our providers, our members, I should say, and of course our community as a whole, treat patients within our team model of care. So ACPA-approved teams have been around for quite some time. While the organization was founded in 1943, it did take some time to realize that the best possible outcomes were, were happening due to interdisciplinary, comprehensive team care. So what that means is we have developed standards parameters, evidence, especially growing evidence for when children should go through different steps of care. That includes things like their first surgery, to Ah. feeding therapy, to speech therapy, to dental care, and how all of these different providers work together. So if a child, for example, has a velopharyngeal insufficiency, which has to do with the way that they speak, I hope I said that correctly, that's something that a speech pathologist might see and be able to analyze correctly. However, they can then work with a plastic surgeon or an oral maxillofacial surgeon to really dictate what that level of care looks like in terms of upcoming surgeries or what needs to be worked on. And then again, how that ties into perhaps their next work of orthodontia or if that's tying into psychosocial and behavioral health. So we really tie this into comprehensive care. The patient and their family are who comes first. And we are a patient-first language organization. Well, Adam, we got a lot to talk about when talking about ACPA, but before we do that, let's talk about your journey. How did you get to become executive director? So I was lucky enough to come across this opening. My predecessor, who is well-known in the association world, had worked here for some time. I don't envy her at times, even though I don't know her exact journey herself, had really navigated the organization through some difficult years. I was at an organization based in Chicago. And this organization was in North Carolina, where I live now. And it really felt like a perfect fit. And I have to say, through the process of working with the search firm to the search committee made up of the actual, you know, board leadership and leaders from the association serving on that committee, I felt really good from the start. Ah. I just felt sort of an organic tie to the organization. I usually leave my personal life out of things You know, I have two little kids and we benefited from a form of team care from when they were born. And I shared that story early on and felt a a kind of direct connection to that scientific community, but also how it directly impacts patients and families. And really seeing what I think a lot of us in the nonprofit world look for, which is this idea that we can be professionally fulfilled by doing something for the greater good in that kind of servant leadership role. And that's really the best way I can describe it is it just felt right. Mm. from the moment that I first engaged with our organization. And it was left in a position where I felt like I could come in and really do good work, that we were ready to roll. 
Nice. You know, Adam, during the prep, you talked about how you want everyone around you to be successful, and that's your leadership mantra. What does that look like? I think that goes back to the idea of servant leadership, you know, certainly learning from those that I have really admired, that I've taken things away from directly or indirectly, both in associations or, or otherwise. It has to do with learning from examples where I wish, you know, perhaps something would have been different and making sure that I'm doing it the way that feels right for my people. I think I'm at a point where I've realized it's, it's just not about me. Hmm. The best way I can put it, I want my team in terms of my staff team or those that I work with, whether they're contractors or vendors or partners, to, to really be successful. I think that's kind of what this role is about. I know where I stand. I know who I report to. I think that the success of others falls back on my plate. When I want people to succeed, it's because their success is my success. Yes. As opposed to the other way around. Yes. You know, my success is not because of them per se. It's not, that's not this role. Not everyone may agree with that, but I just simply have benefited so much from those people looking out for me, especially in, you know, my younger days that I just am stuck in this sort of paid forward mode when it comes down to wanting my people to be successful and to flourish and to be with them for as long as they want to be with me and then to flourish elsewhere if that's the decision that they choose to make. Adam, this is your first full-time executive director position. You, I think you were in interim before this. So what you bring to this position? Because what I find is that really engaging and successful EDs and CEOs come to the table with ideas about how they think an organization should be run. So I think you brought some pretty specific ideas to this position. Maybe you can share some of them. Absolutely. I think, you know, the interview process in of itself for a CFE role is really interesting because it's really about a vision before you mm. work somewhere. So you don't know everything about an organization, but it's the idea of like, can you see what's possible? And so I think for me, that exercise in of itself allowed me to come in and want to execute on that vision and have something clear in mind. I did start during the pandemic. And so I think there was sort of ample opportunity to simply say, well, there's a lot of opportunity in front of us just because of where we're at now. I think a big portion of what I focused on was the organizational culture. Mm. You know, again, I think we had a lot of really positive things going for us as an organization. I decided to stay fully remote where our team was working that way. I certainly had certain positions on how we worked, the work that we were going to do, how we would treat each other as a team thinking in a different way in terms of, you know, one of my big things is scaling forward, getting out of the way we've always done it. That's a term I talked about a lot early on is the way we've always done it. You know, some people, when I started, bought into that and others decided this was not the place that they maybe worked before. And so we organically built a team that really buys into that concept. I also talked a lot about decentralization. That was one of the first concepts I talked about with the board especially in a, re a remote environment, a fully remote environment, we need a team that is independent. It doesn't mean that everyone has to have 20 years of experience, but it means that I want to empower everyone to make decisions on their own. I want them to feel confident in success, in failure, in trying, in experimentation, in entrepreneurial mindsets. And it means that I will be there to support them in that as opposed to approving every decision they make or walking them through every process. So we really do function as a pretty decentralized organization where I truly believe everyone has the ability to make a large impact. We're not a huge organization. 
the way we'll be successful is by having that model, not by waiting around and letting people kind of move slow and wonder if every decision they make is the right one. You know, Adam, I believe in this idea of decentralization. And the way I make it work is to provide guidance and guardrails. Where can you be fully independent? When do you escalate it? And when do you just run? So how do you set those guardrails and parameters? I love that. It's a perfect way of expressing how I feel. I I could not agree more. You know, I think there are some, we'll call them procedural elements to that. You know, that could have to do with a literal, here's how we function as an organization on, you know, an approval level or a financial level. It certainly has to do with budget and understanding and people being clear on their role, on their expectations, and, and what goes into that. One of the old Lencioni books that I listened to some time ago. Love Lencioni. One of the elements is clarity. And so in terms of a guardrail, one of mine is clarity. Constantly preaching to everyone about clarity. I shouldn't say preaching because I like to preach, but do you have clarity? I mean, it doesn't matter if you think it'll work or not. It's just simply, if you don't have very good clarity on a decision you're going to make, you're not ready to make that decision. Hmm. And sometimes that means you have to take a long time and sometimes it's in an instant. But I do think that clarity on decisions is probably the strongest guardrail that we have. And the other is putting in a lot of time to talking and listening with the team. I mean, I would say it can be exhausting at times making that decision. In other words, I don't have lots of separation between me and the team. So I'm here to answer questions and listen and meet Mm. and mentor and offer guidance and coach and do anything I can to help their success. And that has to do with, you know, the thing you just mentioned as well, when they're not sure, I want to be there to answer those questions. It is not, here's kind of what I think. Now go off and figure it out on your own. So until there is clarity, even in the process for them and what that means, I'm here to guide them each and every step, no matter what. Hey, let's turn to ACPA. You say that a big part of what you do is really provide family resources. What does that mean and what does it look like? Love that question. Thank you. Yeah, this is something I am passionate about. It has changed since I began here. There were not a lot of societies and organizations providing information and care in our space. I mean, it's a really small area of healthcare, all things considered, you know, in in the many areas and disciplines of healthcare. So, you know, many years ago, our organization as both a standalone foundation and kind of a scientific side of what we do developed different versions of this. We call them learning resources, materials that our healthcare providers could hand to a patient or a family at those meetings. Ah, yeah. As well as things that eventually, as the internet set in, they could download and, and view online, watch videos, things of that nature. We did have a separate sort of entity and certainly staff dedicated to this. And I think it worked for a while. I don't, you know, having not been here 20 years, the easiest answer I have for this is the internet. People didn't need paper everything anymore. They could Google something. And so I think over time, our role in that became slightly less relevant. And when I discovered this, it felt like an opportunity to reposition that. So we're really focused now on a big passion of mine, which is improving the public's trust in science. Ah. So that means we want to make sure that all of our materials are as up-to-date as possible on a more frequent basis, which means we still lean on our volunteers, but we facilitate how they provide information to us for those materials. You know, I think in the past, we've had people who are kind enough to just dedicate hours and hours to updating these materials on their own. And in a larger organization, you might have a practice management committee and a practice management director who's on staff. There's a variety of ways that organizations do this. 
And we've always been volunteer-led in a lot of these areas. So, you know, we're really dedicating funds to stand behind the science more and make sure that our information is cited properly, that trust is paramount, that search engine optimization is top of mind in terms of where people get their information online, because there are so many places to gather info on cleft and craniofacial conditions. Facebook, Reddit, you know, whatever you want to say is going to have tons of parent groups. And we just decided, and I decided, I'm not going to fight all these places. Instead, we're going to focus on what we can control. And that is having the best, most scientifically referenced resources for the public in our space. Ah, so you're not trying to be fully comprehensive and be the place where everything is listed, but you're providing the best and most current scientific research about these conditions. That's exactly correct. I mean, there are some patients and families who are doing amazing work. There's dozens, if not hundreds, of family foundations and cleft social groups on Facebook. There's groups that have 20,000 people strong of affected patients who you know, are in their teenage years and they found community in some sort of online group, things of that nature. You know, when I started, there was a lot of comments to me about these and how we could relate to them more. And, you know, did they make sense for us? And hmm. I just don't know why we want to reinvent what's working already for so many other people, especially hmm. because that's not really our core mission, especially as we revamp the strategic plan and our mission and vision statement. So, you know, leading interdisciplinary care does not mean providing Facebook groups and moderating them every day of the week. Uh, you know, that's not what we do. Right, right. But we do have the best providers of cleft and craniofacial care in the world. So why are we not tapping into that to make sure that everything we offer is the best in the world? Now, Adam, before you got there three years ago, the organization was not engaging in advocacy and you brought that to the organization. So why is advocacy important and what does it look like? Yeah, I think 501c3s is a whole struggle with this. And I came from pretty much the 501c6 world to just kind of define that easily. And certainly that includes some pretty heavy lobbying organizations. I mean, I was at National Restaurant for just about two years, which is not a long time. Big lobbying organization. I mean, it's just like everything is lobbying, right? So I think I witnessed that and I understood the difference between lobbying and advocacy. And I also read a ton of membership surveys, as well as obviously ASA published data and just general membership organizations as a whole you almost always see that advocacy or lobbying is going to be one of the top three member values or benefits. And so we really jumped into this concept of it was another kind of missing piece. And I guess I just want to say too, maybe this is weird to say, I think changes that I've made or things we've started aren't due to somebody who came before me not doing them for any reason outside of everyone has their own opportunities that they come into. And I think on this one, it was just one of those examples of like, this is one of these things that just slowly built. And when I came in, it seemed ripe for jumping into. And so that's what we did. We took all of the necessary procedural steps in terms of, call it consulting with our CPA and our auditors, things of that nature, our attorney, and then deciding to RFP and eventually choose a partner to work with who specialized in grassroots advocacy and could really help us pursue initiatives that had to do with grassroots, grass tops, advocacy, not lobbying in any capacity, no PAC work but we can still support legislation. We can make connections. We can join coalitions and alliances. We can advocate for team care. We can become more publicly aware. There's so many areas of advocacy for our specific space that we can do that have no danger to us as a 501c3 organization. And really, again, hmm. come back to serving our membership. But in the end, it's serving their patients. And I think that's, again, where this makes the most sense. So the easiest example I can give you is, we're supporting a huge piece of legislation right now that 
helps remove the barrier for insurance companies to say that a procedure is deemed not medically necessary. So we hear this all the time, and I'm sure for years, all of our members and my predecessors have heard this and have had no solution where a patient says, well, I need this procedure so I can my daughter can breathe correctly, but insurance says it's a dental issue because it's in the back of her mouth. But then dental says, well, we don't cover that. That's a, a surgical issue. That's a, an ENT issue. And before they know it, no one's covering it. And that person's mortgaging their house to pay for this $35,000 procedure after they've already had 10 other surgeries, you know, by the time their child is like 10. So this is something where it impacts the patients and families first and foremost. But because our members and our community is so altruistic and they're choosing this line of work, they were the ones and are the ones out there writing appeals letters to insurance and saying, my hands are tied. You know, I can't do all this work for free, but I want to help you. So advocacy really fits in the middle here. It's helping our patients, but it's also helping our providers in the work that they do. So a really organic fit in terms of how advocacy works for our organization. Yeah, so that's been a big change. You're also thinking about embarking on some big changes with your conference. Tell us about that. Yes. I'll give a quick shout out to Dean West and his column that I read recently and how that kind of reinvigorated my focus on this. You know, my background was meetings and events for a long time. And after being on that more logistical meeting planner side, I transitioned into the more of the overall association strategy side, but obviously at an association that's going to include strategy on the annual meeting or meetings. So I just, I've always wanted to kind of fly by to see my pants to some degree, like throw in changes and see what happens. Do people like them? Do they not like them? Make suggestions that I get dirty looks for, but I feel good that I at least got people thinking. I think that's kind of an easy way of describing it in terms of strategy and making changes. I also obviously wanted to provoke changes through direct questions. So that's making sure that our surveys are not, was the hotel sufficient for your liking? Was the food good? I mean, these are ah. questions that have been on event surveys forever and give you nothing in terms of impactful change. Moved away from that kind of question. And again, kind of really focusing on the why of meetings. And, you know, I don't profess to be the, the know-all be-all, but I think in my experience, a lot of us meetings folks and association folks saw more and more of the social constructs, the experiential element of meetings. People come for community, not just for content. And that was a big area of focus too. And then, of course, the pandemic came along. And, you know, again, this was a takeaway from Dean's column where he so eloquently and sarcastically and flippantly, which I love, pointed out that so many of us association folks said, you know, our events will never be the same. This is the catalyst for change. And then because of the framework itself to meetings and events where we contract years out, we know our audiovisual needs food and beverage, all the logistically meeting plannery kind of stuff that goes into them, it doesn't matter how much we try to change or said we would change, we're stuck. And so, you know, we've seen great meetings with changes, but the frame is still the same. I mean, there's still like, mm. you go, you've got a trade show floor, you've got education content, you've got your social events, you've got your special interest groups. I don't know. I feel like everyone still has the same framework and that includes us to some degree. So I'm really after asking the question of why, and that comes in the format of a board discussion. We had a strategic board discussion a couple of weeks ago at our board meeting. It has to do with surveys to our membership, to our staff. We had a strategic planning retreat as a staff to answer that question. So when we start planning for future years that we are contracted for, we can plan for what is best for us, not what's best for meeting planning, not because 
the sales managers at the hotels who I love and think the world of are showing us what ballrooms have been renovated and uh, what kind of sustainability initiatives they have and all the things that we talk about at our site visits and things like that. We want to talk about what people benefit from at our meeting, us. It's about our people, not the industry as a whole. And I want to recreate a meeting that is for us and us alone. And not based on the venue. Not based on a venue, not based on the well-valued, but individual members who have been members for 35, 40 years. It's about the future and protecting the organization and protecting the profession and the patients. You know, it's maybe the only selfish thing that I could probably say is like, we need to do what's best for us. Yeah, yeah, okay. And I think to do that, we have to start from scratch now and start to make changes now, not wait for another meeting survey or another focus group. So Adam, what does 2024 look like for ACPA? Sounds like you're going to usher in some change. Yes. We are going to be entering the third year of our strategic plan that we began in January of 2022. So it's been two years of a lot of change already. We talked about some of that with advocacy and several other changes. Yeah, 2024 is, in my opinion, probably the year that I am less focused on the structure of the organization. So that's like our financial health, the way that our staff works, our culture, our board culture. These are obviously going to remain focuses. You know, we rebranded, have a newer website, new contracts for things like our journal editor, just things that are very like tactical. Transactional, yeah. Transactional, exactly. You know, at the board level, I would call it oversight. I am all about foresight and strategy at this point. And so that that has to do with that meeting strategy. It has to do with where we fit into the global sphere of craniofacial care. That scientific side that we talked about earlier with the family resources, I want that to reflect in everything that we do. I want to focus on what's been missing because we are a small industry. We don't have money to form national or international patient registries because those all exist in the singular disciplines that make up our multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary teams. Ah, yes. How do we get that data so we can provide it as an organization, just like any other larger group like ASHA or ASPS or American College of Surgeons or any clinical society that's going to have that data for their researchers and their members, whereas our members are very segmented and siloed because they have to go to several areas. I want to start to fill those roles. I would call them kind of the beginning of the moonshot, the loonshot idea. They're the ones where people look at me like I'm crazy. They're the ones where our longtime members tell me about how they tried to do it 15 years ago and they were shot down. And I tell them, I don't care what happened 15 years ago because we're going to figure this out now. So I'm just kind of focused on the future and finding out how we get that funding and making it happen. That's what 2024 and beyond is, is less tactical, less transactional, less operational, and more strategic and more foresight driven. Adam, I love it. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you did during this interview. I hope you'll come back because we, all of us are going to want to hear about your 2024, what you've got in store and the changes that you're going to usher in. I appreciate you being willing to listen to me. I'm excited to be here and it's been so nice chatting with you. So thank you so much for giving me the, the platform and the venue. And let me say, I've enjoyed learning so much from all the other folks that you've had on as well. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, 
is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye. Bye.